2012. And uh, we're going to start with the book of Matthew. Our message today is called Cause. C-A-U-S-E. Cause. Tell me when you get to Matthew, the 24th chapter. Two of you are there, but I'm going to wait on all of you. This would be like when Israel crossed the Jordan. Every single Israelite crossed over to the other side. Pause. Pick up with me in verse 4 of chapter 24. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Before we move on from that, Jewish history from the first century forward is replete with wars. In the Bar Kokhba rebellion that occurred in Israel around 132 A.D., some, uh, a, a man named Bar Kokhba was declared to be a Messiah. These scriptures had a literal fulfillment during that time. But there is yet something even further uh, into the heart of God that was not just fulfilled in the first century, but echoed something that would come much later, something that we're experiencing even now. Listen to the redundancy in these words. It's a neat thing, a good thing, and it's there for a reason. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. You might think we're splitting hairs to talk differently about nations and kingdoms, but nations are made of people and so are kingdoms. Nations have rulers and so do kingdoms. It seems kind of an odd thing to say, like maybe it was just being repetitive, but it's not being repetitive. Among the nations of men, there would be warfare. There would be uh, one nation rising against another in war, just like we saw in World War II. But in the background of that, or maybe in the foreground spiritually, and what we're seeing is the background, the kingdom of light would be clashing with the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. The sons of light would be clashing with the sons of darkness. The weed and the wheat would begin to rattle against each other in the wind. This would be a time of great conflict. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I've been talking to you about this kind of thing a lot lately because the reality is we are not supposed to just sit and soak and be nice and have nothing to interact with or do. You were filled with a purpose. We are following a Messiah who has told us point blank kingdom is going to rage against kingdom. And I tell you it's happening all around us. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted. I'm sorry that our American theology has written that out. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted for my name's sake. When we say we're blessed, we think it means that you got an extra fat check. Blessed is when you're accounted worthy to suffer for the name. You search the historically accurate, absolutely present word of God, and you will find out that these men suffered for the gospel. If you have someone on the team that you don't care enough about to put in the game, of course they're not going to get any scrapes or scratches on it. I remember playing football with Matthew when we were younger. You could tell who didn't get in the game because their uniform was pristine. They looked like an athlete. They dressed like an athlete. 
and they showed up at the athletic event, but at the end of the day, they never made contact with anyone. Too often Christianity looks that way. It's nice and pre pretty and neat. It's never made contact with the enemy. It's never become dangerous to the enemy. It has never dared to care enough about somebody to start a fight with the devil. My hope is that I can stir us to action. That the Holy Ghost will use the members of the body to spur one another on to action. Do you remember? Well, you have a reading plan, so you won't have to remember. Did anybody read Luke 11? Numbers 2. This was on your reading plan this week. That was Friday's reading. In Luke 11, they asked Jesus how to pray. You can also find this in Matthew, the 6th chapter. How to pray. Do you remember what he says? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Come on, well, were none of you ever in an organized religion? When I did this in Lafayette, everybody jumped up in unison and said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. There are kingdoms that are colliding. There are kingdoms that are colliding. One that is present on the earth and one that is being established on the earth. It did not originate in the earth. It originated in the heavens. Do you remember in John 18, Jesus is speaking with Pilate. And while they're discussing it, Pilate's trying to figure out, are you a king? Jesus says, it is as you say. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But it is from another place. This is not the kind of nation struggling against nation. This is a kingdom that is born in the heavens and deposited in the hearts of men. And when you have received it, it's something that is worth fighting for. When you receive a football, you fight to hang on to it. You fight to advance it. And that is a silly, childish game that has become idolatry to all of America. We care more about an event that happens after church one weekend a year, then we care about what's happening in the kingdom of God. And I tell you, church, it's not that football is sin. It is sin to have our affections set everywhere other than where God's affections are. Because He's trying to deposit something in us. Something that you carry. Something that you advance. Something that will cause you to get some bumps and scrapes because you are in contention with the enemy. What do you do with salt when it's no longer salty? What do you do if you bought a gun and it simply would not fire? What do you do? What do you do with a Christian that will not stand for the kingdom? Well, you determine that they love the world. And when we love the world, we've become enemies of God. You know, I don't know, in this political season, you could liken it to tribal warfare. And they tell churches not to get involved in those things. I'm pretty well involved in everything that affects the human condition. But I want to talk about this political season. Who knows who Donald Rumsfeld is? Okay, so we have a few of you that watch the news. I appreciate that. Donald Rumsfeld was the Secretary of Defense under Bush. Second Bush. He's standing in front of reporters, right? And I love these scenarios. You know what I'm talking about. We have 15 questions that are all asking the exact same thing in a different way and he doesn't want to answer it, right? Well, this man was not a politician. Whatever you think about him, he was not a politician. So they said, what was the point of that campaign? He said, to kill the bad guys. They said, yes, but strategically, what were we trying to achieve with that? He said, to make them dead. <laughs> the reporter said, do you have time for a follow-up? He goes, no. 
The man understood we were at war. He didn't have time to sit around and talk about it. We didn't sit around and form committees. We didn't sit and debate what the color of our carpet would be. Surely the greatest issue of our time is not to be fermented or not fermented in our community. Surely this is not the greatest issue of our time while they're building abortion clinics in our cities. While they're showing such filth and disgust in our movie theaters on Friday and Saturday night that is filling the minds of our people that are walking into church on Sunday morning and then we're going, why, uh, why was worship flat today? Never considering that we may have offended the presence of God by the things that we tolerate and accept. You know, in the first and second chapter of Romans, it doesn't just condemn wicked practices. It condemns those who approve of wicked practices. Friends, it is time to stand up and be counted. The way that we stand up and be counted is not militant. It's militant spiritually, but it is not militant physically in any way. In fact, Matthew 5 teaches us that we are to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. That's Matthew 5, 44. It is warfare that begins within your very being. David, when somebody slaps you, what is the most natural reaction? Hit them back. Most natural reaction. So the first thing that David does if he wants to be in the kingdom of God is warfare begins within him. The Spirit of God begins to show him how to conquer his fleshly desire. Any fool can give full vent to their anger. And that's exactly what anger makes us, is foolish. But it takes a man who is controlled by the Spirit of God to not retaliate, but instead submit his will and his desires to the presence of God. And when we do that, then God speaks to him and shows him what to do. And he does that, and friends, that is called lordship. And it is not possible to be saved without doing that. It is not. We cannot continue to do everything that we want to do and take repentance as something that we will do later for granted. Did you know that the book of Acts speaks about repentance as a gift? The Jews were amazed that the Gentiles had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they said, so then... God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Granted. He, grant, he gifted it. It is a gift that we have the opportunity to turn around. Grace is not a license for immorality, as Jude has said. It is not an opportunity to forget that we're in a war, in a boxing ring, in a life and death situation and just do as we please. Soldiers are shot on the battlefield for doing those things. Men lost their life in World War II, not at the hands of the enemy, at the hands of their commanding officers for refusing to engage in battle. That was a war between nations. What is it like when kingdoms clash? Spiritual kingdoms. We're at war. And the enemy has already declared our death. He has already been exposed to someone who steals from us who kills us and destroys us. We do not have time to play nice. In Matthew 16, the 24th verse, Jesus said that anyone who does not deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of him. When we look at that, we need to understand that the Christian walk is marked most uh, prominently in the very beginning by a sense of denying your earthly nature and obeying a heavenly one. This is how the kingdom was deposited in you. You no longer rule you. Your flesh no longer rules you. Have you heard all men are pigs? Well, all men that, that yield to their fleshly nature are pigs. I've met men that have become princes with God. 
we live in a time where women want to be equal with men and, and praise God for many aspects of that thought, but they've become equally as piggish as men. This was not to be so. The only nature change that we were supposed to endure was a nature change, change born of the presence of God in our midst. How many of you want the presence of God in your life? I want you to know what a dangerous thing you're asking for. Because He will not leave any stone unturned. He will never leave well enough alone. He will never let you put Him on a cart to be driven by oxen. He will never let you decide what you do with Him. He decides what He does with you. This is the heart of Christianity. The answer to Jesus' question is yes before we know what the question is. And if that is not where we're at, then we're just a religious organization, a bless me group, a book club. But if that is where we are at, we are dangerous to the enemy. We're like special operatives that can go behind enemy lines and take it to him. Amen. Luke 16 is one of my favorite passages. In the 16th verse, he says, The law and the prophets were preached until John. The kingdom of God has been advancing since then. And forceful men force their way into it. Force their way into it. Friends, there is something that has to come out of your spirit. Something that has to begin to rise up that says, I will no longer live as a slave to my flesh. I will no longer be an average, ordinary, nominal Christian. I want to please my king. I don't care about the civilian affairs, as Paul told Timothy. I want to please my commanding officer. And it begins by waking up in the morning and saying, what do you want me to do today? What can I get done before lunch? Is there a divine appointment? Is there something you have for me today, in the next hour, before breakfast? And live with an expectancy that He wants to use you. After all, He paid a terrible price for you. A terrible price. Flesh torn from His body. But that is nothing compared to the agony of knowing that His job would eventually separate Him from the Father. And He would feel the weight of the sin of the world. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve a blood-spattered face. He did not deserve that cry of a lost man, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? He didn't deserve that. You very well do deserve it, and I do too. And because He took that cup of God's wrath for us, we owe Him something. He has purchased our obedience. Amen. He has owed the obedience of the nation. The Lamb shall receive the just rewards of His suffering. The obedience of the nations. Is that your heart this morning? Do you want to be obedient? Yes. If what we want is the Spirit of God in our presence, and what our promise is, is to be obedient to anything that He would lead us, then church, there are no limits for us. But it cannot be lip service. It cannot just be words. Religious people in every generation have drawn near to Him, as Isaiah 29 said, with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. How do we set our hearts on Him? You must baptize your heart in His Word. You must ask for His Holy Spirit to illuminate your life. You will never make it in the kingdom. Never. You'll make it in church. You'll make it in social Christianity. You'll make it in front of your nominal Christian friends. But you will never make it in the kingdom without a steady, daily diet of His Word. Not from a pulpit, not from a radio, not from a listening device. You interacting with the living Word of God and it interacting with you. Say, Eric, I can't read. Then get it in your ears some other way. Learn to read. Do whatever and everything in your life must be centered around absorbing God's message for you or else you do not have real life. Amen. 
Did Jesus not say that a man who wants to keep his life will lose it, but a man who loses his life will gain it? This is what he meant. Your life is not your own anymore. Am I telling you the truth this morning? Yes. So, Pastor, I'm not mad at you yet. Yes. Uh, Psalm 139, you can turn there. Tell me when you get to verse 7. Psalm 139, verse 7. Kingdom is clashing against kingdom. Nation against nation. Spiritual forces dark and light. Colossians tells us that the Son has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. This is where we are. Those who have been brought from death to life. Those who have been given a purpose. Those who have had a changed nature. There are some comforting things about God. Some very comforting things. The book of Deuteronomy says, I am with you even to the very end of the age. It's one of the last things that Jesus said to the apostles before His ascension. He said it in Matthew as well. I am with you to the very end of the age. This was a strange statement. Not strange because they had never heard it, but strange because God is everywhere. And yet He's also somehow right there. Have you ever had the sense that the Lord's presence was with you? But you just you want to hug somebody. You want to, when the Lord's presence was with you, you wanted to speak to somebody. You needed some kind of interaction. Listen to David speaking about this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. No matter where he went, no matter what he experienced, God was everywhere. Well, air is everywhere as well. But the air that is closest to you is very precious to you, is it not? <laughs> will it do you any good to know that there's air on the other side of the earth? Knowing that God is everywhere is one level of comfort. But we need something that I call precious proximity. I'm going to read to you out of a couple verses here. I, I almost never lie when I'm preaching. And when I do, it's usually right before I come to the pulpit and I tell you something like, man, that looks beautiful. What I meant was it looked okay, but I'm trying to say something nice. You know, we all preachers have these weird little things that we do where we're just trying to keep it positive, right? But I won't do that with these scriptures. I'm going to tell you exactly what they say. Is that fair enough? Yeah, yeah. So if you don't trust me, you can turn. If you do trust me, I won't take it offensively. I just want to move quickly. Is that all right? Yeah. You all want to be here till four? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few of you. It's always a rim. It's always a rim. Jeremiah 23, in verse 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? He is not a local deity. He is the Almighty. He is all over at one time. Acts 17 illustrates that precious proximity in a better way. This is the 26th verse. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. 
For we are in him, we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. God is both there and he is here. He is everywhere and he is preciously close. You can know that something like this is true, but let me ask you, when you were a kid, you knew your parents were in the other room, right? You knew that they were there to protect you, but when the lights went off and it went dark and the door closed, what'd you ask for? Everybody might have asked for something different. One of my kids wanted their little stuffed down, something close to remind them it was okay. Another one of my little kids wanted a nightlight. I have another one that could care less about either one of those things, but wants the door open so they can keep a line of sight to our door. You understand what I'm telling you? You know what the Lord has given us as a security blanket? He's everywhere, all of the time, and He's preciously near. But listen to this from Exodus 33, 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go up with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. He has given us a security blanket in the sense that you can see your brothers and sisters being moved by the Spirit of God. You can see that what J.J. did this week was not in J.J.'s own strength. The Lord of glory helped him do it. And so while God's everywhere, He's also preciously close. You can go, there it is. There it is. Here He is. If He can help my sister Natalie do that, He can help me. If He's with Nolan while he's singing in a Friday night meeting, and He's with Mike while he's teaching in a Friday night meeting, then He's with me in the board meeting on a Saturday. This is what the Holy Spirit does when we fellowship together. He's everywhere, but He's also preciously close to us. How many of you have ever seen wind? Let me tell you, not enough of you. You simply see its effects on things. You may not see the Holy Spirit visibly descending as a dove, but what you do see is His effects, His empowerment of the Ruach HaKodesh on the lives of people who are in His kingdom to carry out kingdom principles. As somebody in here prophesied during worship, it is not difficult to know whether or not we are seeing a man moved by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Spirit of God. It is not difficult to know if they're in the kingdom because you will know it by the way that they move and act the fruit on their tree. The reason it's become confusing in America is we have said, believe what I say and ignore what I do. The kingdom does not work that way. The book of Titus says they claim to know God but deny Him by their very actions. What our heart's desire is this morning is what we've spoken about. Holy Spirit, descend upon us. Fill us. Lord, let your kingdom be born in us. Give us the strength to carry it out that our actions would match what we say is in our heart. How many of you would like a dose of that this morning? The Bible says we have not because we ask not. If you're sitting in this church with your arms folded and your teeth are glued shut and you cannot speak, you came simply to observe. That's okay for your first time. We'll let you get away with that. But I'm telling you, this church and no church of the living God should be okay with you simply observing. Even if you tithe. Even if you come observe every week. Even if you observe with a smile on your face. 
you are here to be prepared for works of service and no other reason. Because there is a kingdom to build and it is not this building. It is not this ministry. The kingdom that is being built is bigger than us. It is worldwide. It is global. It will change the face of the earth. And you are a participant, not an observer. If you're an observer, you don't belong to the king and are in for a rude awakening. Do not think we can sit back passively. Luke 16 told us we force our way into it. That forcefulness starts inside you and it begins to grow outside you. Does anybody Has anybody experienced it? Nolan, were you nervous before you began to lead worship the other night? Beforehand. But something happened as he began to lead worship and what he was nervous in his flesh to do, the Spirit of God filled him to do. And suddenly he did it effortlessly. Does that mean Nolan's a great guy? No. Does it mean Nolan's super talented? No. He may be all of those things, but that's not evidence of Nolan's greatness. It's evidence of the greatness of our God. The fact that a violent, godless, religious zealot could be changed into what God has done with my life today is not proof of my adherence to the Scripture. It's not proof of my tenacity. It's not proof of my birthright. It's not proof of anything except the greatness of our God. When the Bible says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony did they overcome, this is what we're speaking of. Our total, absolute, utter dependence upon God and His glory. Amen? Amen. How many of you feel sometimes like you can't succeed? Every once in a while you feel like more of a failure than a success. Just Ryan. Ryan's the only one in here that feels that way. Praise God, it doesn't depend upon you. It it depends on your obedience to the presence of God. That's it. He doesn't ask you to do anything that He doesn't give you the strength to do. Peter was hiding in an upper room for fear of the Jews and got filled with the Holy Ghost and stood and said, Men of Israel, listen to me. He didn't give him an option. He picked a fight right there with the prince of darkness. And 3,000 people were saved because he had the courage to depend upon the Lord. What would happen if we stood up? What would happen if we said it does depend upon me? What would happen if instead of just praying, Lord, come back, we listened to him when he said, I want you to go to them? What would happen? We think that we pay holy men with holy fees on holy days and holy clothes and holy places to go do these things for us. And I'm telling you, it depends upon you. It depends on you, CJ. It depends upon you, Mike. It depends upon you, Bob. That's how this works. It depends upon us. And if you don't do what God designed you to do, it doesn't get done or somebody else has to do it. Man, I don't want to be the stumbling block. I don't want to be in the way. It's a neat thing. I have new friends in this room today that traveled here from Lafayette that had interactions with some people that I love in another place. I got to plant a seed, but somebody else got to water it. And God gets the increase. The way that the kingdom works is every part of the body is working for one purpose, that God would get an increase. Every part of the body has one heart's cry. His kingdom first. This means that you can start it and you don't have to see it finished. You're not owed that. It means that you might walk up on a work somebody else started, but you have the same purpose you finish it. Because the work's never been about us. It's about Him. Period. It's about Him. You want to get into the work? Yeah. How about this then? Go ahead and turn with me to number seven. 
I learned the hard way when I was managing businesses, and I have found out that it is a kingdom principle. Business didn't teach it to me. God taught it to me through business. That if you assign a task to everybody, it does not get done. It's called the diffusion of responsibility. If I tell a hundred people, what I'd really like to see happen is that cup be picked up. A hundred people heard it, and a hundred people thought someone else will do it. The church is sitting around with a diffusion of responsibility. God has said to us to do something. But none of us have taken it as a personal responsibility to see it done if it costs us our lives. I shouldn't say none of us. I should say some of us. Somewhere the gospel becomes a very personal thing to you. Somewhere Jesus becomes not just the Son of God who died for you, but your friend. Somewhere it's not a vow to God, sin, something that you just don't want to do or try not to do, it becomes letting your friend down, breaking your promise to him when you sin. Do you hear me? If Matthew went into debt, gave up his children, lost his house, and was living homeless so that I could have certain things, would I have a, a feeling of deadedness? Of course I would. Jesus gave up that heavenly estate. He gave up equality with God to become an ordinary human being. Philippians 2 says he stepped down further than that. He became a servant. It says he stepped down further than that. He submitted to death. Further than submitting to death, even death on a cross. This is why he's fit to rule everything. And you cannot rule with him without stepping down from everything and everyone that you ever wanted or decided or needed to do in doing only that which he tells you to do. That's it. There is nothing that you get to hold back for yourself. Nothing. It all becomes about Him. It is an all or nothing kingdom. Because of that diffusion of responsibility, we find out in numbers God does something. If I say, hey, God is everywhere, you're like, where? It's hard to find Him if He's everywhere. You get dizzy like that. He gave them a focal point. He began to say, look, watch. Here it is. Here it is. And in number 7, we find verse 89. Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him. Listen to this from. That's a proximity word. It tells us from. Like where? Well, from there. This word gives us an inclination as to a direction. Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony. He heard the voice of God coming from between the cherubim on the atonement cover. That would be from about that plant to me. In that space, suddenly, he began to perceive the voice of God. God is everywhere. It's un intangible. Hard to imagine. Hard to relate to. But when you say, there, he met with me between the atonement cover the cherubim on the atonement cover, suddenly that becomes symbolic of where you go to meet with God. The atonement cover was on the ark of God. It was carried on men's shoulders. It led them into battle. The ark of God was a symbol of God's presence. He didn't dwell there. He can't dwell just there. He fills everything, even the heavens. But he caused his name to dwell there. This was a place where you could get familiar with his character, his authority, his reputation. It was a focal point for Israel. Because of that, when they thought of God doing things, throughout the psalm, Psalm 18.10, speaks of God mounting the cherubim. 
and flying. You see it in 2 Samuel 22 as well. Darkness became a canopy around him. He mounted the cherubim and flew. That conception of God began to grow. He dwells between the cherubim. And I don't mean that they created it when I say perception of God. I'm not saying that they invented this. What I'm saying is they began to understand more about the God who is everywhere also is suddenly here doing this. I don't mean that it's a story that grew and became fact. I don't mean that it's religious folklore that we now accept as fact. I take it for exactly literally what it says. God somehow mounted cherubim and flew. What an interesting thing. Can you pick when you picture God, right? Which is inaccurate to start with because you don't see a form. Jesus is the form. There there is no other form. But when you picture God, if you're honest, it's usually an old man with a beard on a throne, right? That's Zeus, by the way. That is not God. That's Zeus. Having said that, now picture that old man with the white beard on a throne mounted on two birds. You know? That's a little humorous. It's like a downhill slalom, you know? Santa Claus is skiing. I, we cannot picture that. But every once in a while there was a prophet who saw into the heavens. And they described things that were indescribable. Like words are completely inadequate. They're accurate, but they're inadequate to describe what they're seeing. And you get these descriptions like, turn to the first chapter of Ezekiel. While you're turning to Ezekiel, I want to tell you something that comes from 1 Chronicles 28 and the 18th verse. If you're having trouble keeping up with all of those scriptures, I have always been this way. I can't help it. It will never change. So I'm asking you if God called you here to get used to it. <laughs> they come in kind of a rush. That's because the Word always has multiple testimonies in it. If you are hanging your hat on a single scripture in, in, in the Bible, you're either confused and, and shouldn't hang your hat on it, or you just haven't read enough. Because Bible truth is everywhere. Are y'all in Ezekiel 1? Yes. Here comes 1 Chronicles 28. <laughs> you stay in Ezekiel 1. And the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense. And he also gave him the plan for the chariot. That is the cherubim of gold. That spread their wings and shelter the ark of the covenant of the Lord. This Hebrew idea is that that place, that place where we heard God's voice. That place where a high priest goes into once a year, it's not just a box with golden wings. It's, it's, it's not just these heavenly creatures mounted on a box. You see, what happens is God is really, He's there on a chariot. That word in Hebrew is Merkava. If you think you've heard that before, Merkava, does anybody I know Darren has, we've talked about it many times. Merkava? No, nobody watches it. Judah, you watch the military channel, don't you? John does, an ex-soldier. Merkava is what the Israelis call their tank. There's a reason for this. Merkava in Hebrew is translated chariot, but it's not an ordinary chariot. Rekha is an ordinary chariot. Rekha can mean like wagon, right? Like there's a big difference between a chariot and a wagon, right? Like a chariot would be a one-ton four-wheel drive diesel Ford. A wagon would be a Dodge of something. Yeah. Uh, uh, leave it to me to ruin a good sermon, a sermon with a bad analogy. Every time I see Dodge, their most famous engine was a 318, and James 318 says Dodge sin. So I, I don't know, know what to tell you. Um, I'm going to leave that alone. I don't even own a Ford anymore. Somebody stole it, you know? 
What I wanted you to understand about this word Merkava is it is a weapon of warfare. They envisioned God enthroned above the cherubim, but they called it a chariot. They called it something that was a weapon of warfare, not a wagon to carry something around, a Rekha, a, a Merkava, something that was for war. And when the most devastating tank that the world had ever produced was made in Israel, they called it a Merkava. Another way to translate it is not chariot, but chariot of fire, chariot of warfare, destruction, power, awesome. Does that sound awesome? Yes. I should have pictures, but you know what? There is no picture of it. You know what there is? There's the first chapter of Ezekiel where you are, right? Yes. Pick up with me in the 10th verse. 10th verse. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of the other creature on the other side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Did y'all hear that description? But it's like reading. It's like reading directions that were written to put together your child's playset. And they were written by someone who does not speak our language. I mean, when you hear it, did anybody get the clearest mental image? Like you're like, oh, now I know exactly what it looks like. You don't, do you? Artists have tried to draw this. People have done all kinds of things to try to conceptualize it because the man is seeing into the heavenlies and he's telling you what he sees, but you've never seen anything like it. You can't compare it to it. The creatures had four faces? What do you know that has four faces? You know? Each of the faces, we had things like a lion. Well, you know, it's not a lion, it's like a lion. We had an oxen and an eagle. We had a man's face. And their wings were spread upward. Look at some of the rest of this description. It gets even better. How about verse 17? As they moved, they would go in, in any one of the four directions the creature faced. And the wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. You have four things with wheels. And the wheels don't turn for it to move anywhere. Why do you have wheels? You look at this description and it, it gets uh, glorious awe-inspiring, amazing, a little bit confusing, huh? He's conceptualizing something. He's writing about something as he sees it, and his description is inadequate in the, only in the sense that God had multiple ways he was going to show us this, and this is the first glimpse of the throne of God. All young people usually like verse 18. Their rims were high and awesome. <laughs> How about that? And all four rims were full of eyes all the way around. God drives a four-wheel drive, Matthew. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go. That's an important feature. The throne of God is powered by the Spirit of God, just like the people of God. Look at verse 25. Then there came a voice from above the expanse above their heads as they stood with lowered wings. A voice is coming from an expanse above the heads of the winged creatures. 
Are you beginning to see that what was on the earth was a shadow of something that was in the heavens? In the, uh, on the earth we had a golden box with strange winged creatures and a voice coming from above it. But in the heavens, when we look into the heavens, we see these living creatures that are equally strange, awesome, wonderful, beautiful. And their wings are stretched up and above them is an expanse and a voice is coming from it. We have something on the earth that represents something in the heavens because Moses, according to the book of Hebrews, looked into the heavens and made a pattern, a copy of everything that he saw. Watch what happens here with this voice. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. A brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This man is looking into the heavens. He's seeing the throne of God that the Hebrews called the Merkabah chariot. It was movable. It was on the expanse above the wings of living creatures. And wherever the Spirit went, he never had to turn around because he's already everywhere. But this is the focal point of the things of God. And this man looked into the heavens and he saw it. There was something like a man there. When the Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand on the throne of God, he's in the chariot. He is a man who is in the throne of God. He's the fullness of the deity. He is our focal point. Amen. When you want to know what God would do, we don't have to say, what would Jesus do? We can say, what did He do? Everything about Jesus' life is the focal point of what it is like when a man is full of the Spirit of God. This is what it looks like. This is how it happens. He does not yield to the enemy. He can say things like, the prince of this world comes for me, but he has no hold on me. He can say, you tell that fox I will press on today, tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. He can face evil. Because he is filled and motivated by the Spirit of God. And it is not a wagon. It is a war chariot. Sometimes in the charismatic Pentecostal world, we develop something that looks a little bit like merit badges or add-on options. Do you do this? Oh, yeah, speak in tongues. Do you do this? Listen, it was all meant for warfare. That's what this is meant for. We are supposed to be forcefully advancing the kingdom, not collecting gadgets or toys. Forcefully advancing the kingdom. How about this? Maybe we ought to look at some warfare. That might help. Before we look at the warfare, go to Exodus 12. That will help us. Are you bored already? No. Exodus 12. Verse 12. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. We always talk about the Passover being our deliverance. We talk about the Passover foreshadowing the cross of Christ. Even John said it. Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And we speak about the redemptive qualities of the Passover. And we forget that the firstborn of every Egyptian died. 
While some were saved, some perished in the very same event. But maybe even equally as important, on the day of salvation, on the day of judgment on the earth, it was reflective of a judgment that was happening in the heavens. God passed judgment on the gods of Egypt. There's a warfare that happens in the heavenlies. The Hebrews call, uh, call God something. They call him Yahweh Saba. This is the Lord of hosts. It is a term that means a military commander. The God who organized us for battle. Stay in the 12th chapter of Exodus. Look at this verse. Turn to the 41st. In the 41st verse you see a commander, a Lord of hosts. Yahweh Saba doing something. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. All the Lord's divisions. Divisions are military groupings. They're military groupings because you have a skill set in this area. They might be your water purifiers or your logistics group. You have another that is artillery or ordnance. You have divisions for a reason. Israel was a bunch of slaves, but as soon as God began to lead them by His presence with His Merkava out in front of them, His chariot throne, He put them in divisions for warfare. Ezekiel th or Exodus 13 says they left Egypt armed for battle. He was merciful. He didn't take them straight into battle because He was, he, he was concerned that when they faced war, they may turn back. He wanted to train them. Maybe you hadn't had a lot of battle because God is training. Maybe He's just being merciful. But when do we put away milk and pick up meat? When do we say, Coach, put me in the game? When do we say, I've sat back and practiced till I'm going to burst. It's time to work. Yes. See, the church is dying of affluence. We've had all the training we can handle. We've had all the resources we can handle. All the blessings we can handle. We don't get to do anything with them. And when we don't do anything with them, because, I mean, it might not be safe, then we cease to feel and look and act like Christians and we consider lesser things, debase things. We become more concerned about our comfort and entertainment. You know, the cure for it is to get off of your salvation and do something. That's the cure. When you feel the presence of God fill you for a purpose, it's addictive. I'm going to tell you the truth. I did not have an extensive drug background. I was intoxicated with myself. I didn't need any new drugs. But I knew what it was like to feel the rush of an activity, even a sinful activity. And more exciting than the activity was the rush that came from it. That was filled with a worldly, worldly anointing, a satanic desire for something that was wrong. When I came into the kingdom, the first thing he did was say, you have to deny all of those things. Not because he wanted to kill my joy, he wanted to train me for a different addiction. I began to contemplate things that I saw in the Word that were not commonly being done. Like going to the mall in your hometown the weekend you're born again and turn the thing upside down. Say, why not? Well, it's just not wise at all. But I learned something. Maybe I wasn't all that wise. I learned what it was to feel the anointing of God. And when that happened, I liked it. And I wanted more. And the only times I would get depressed is when I couldn't find anything to go do for the Lord. In fact, He had to train me sometimes that there are seasons in your life that He wants you. Simply take some downtime and retool. Figure out your direction. Make sure he is driving the murder. The more we do in the name of the Lord, when you fast, when you pray, when you give to the poor, not if, the more you do 
for the Lord, the more you feel his anointing, which could be called divine enablement. His divine enablement to do those things. You know what? He wants to advance his kingdom. And he'll do it through you. Pastor, I just don't know my place in this church. I just don't know what to do. We always say the same things. Do you come to church? You know? Do you come regularly? Are you being obedient in every area of your life? And we go through our little checklist, but I want to tell you the truth. What it comes down to is find something Jesus would do and simply do it. Has anybody in here been shot before? I mean, been shot in a Christian environment. Somebody took out a gun and shot you because you were trying to do something and you got a little wrong? Yeah. Then what are you worried about? What are you worried about? We cannot sit and soak. It's so dangerous. You know, how do you go to the places you go? Because it's more dangerous to sit on these pews and simply soak up all of the nutrition and do nothing with it than it is to go out there and dare to try. Amen. It is more dangerous to sit and do nothing and risk falling asleep in the middle of the light than it is to go and try. I don't know where to try. Do you have neighbors? I don't think anybody here lives in a monastery. Do you have neighbors? You live in communities? You go to grocery stores? Try. So, well, they might think, what difference does it make? You don't get to consider that anymore. You've been enlisted in the army of the Lord. Turn with me to Numbers 2. John, I don't want that slide yet, but in just a second I did. So you'll be ready, okay? In Numbers 2, which incidentally was your reading Friday, and I know everybody gets just like, Wow! We get to get into the book of Numbers? I just can't wait for that. <laughs> That's because we often don't know what Numbers is about. Numbers in Hebrew is Be'midbar. Be'midbar means in the desert. This is about being in a dry place. And the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Salmon, shows up and He puts you in divisions. And He begins to lead you by the Spirit and show you how to get to the places He's called you to. Numbers is not a book about numbers. That is, an ignorant title would be too strong. I just tell you that men who had no regard for the Hebrew uh, roots of the faith renamed it, you know. It's kind of like seeing a guy's name is Jacobus, and you go, we have a king named James, let's just call him James. Not quite fair, huh? Would you like it if all of a sudden we were telling stories about Jorge Washington? <laughs> chopping down a cherry tree, and then Jorge went out and skipped across the Potomac. And then at some point, would you go, who is this, our guy or some other guy? I, I don't understand. We've done that with all the Bible characters. We have simply changed their names to something more palatable to us. He said, well, what difference does it make? It's, I mean, we all know who we're talking about, granted. Except the original audience suddenly feels like a foreigner from their own story. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because God cares about that original audience. Jerusalem's where the gospel started, and it is where it will finish. But that was not what I was talking to you about. I was talking about the book of Numbers by Midbar, and in the second chapter, look at the third verse. They're being organized in the desert. On the east, towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. God said, out of all the tribes, I want this tribe, the fourth born from Jacob, I want you to camp on the east side towards the sun. Then look at verse 10. On the south side will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. We've moved from the east to the south, from the right down to the bottom. And there's Reuben. And each one of these tribal leaders also gets accompanying tribes to go with them. 
Then we move from there to verse 18. On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. Then verse 25. On the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan under their standard. John, turn on that slide. Israel knew that God was everywhere. But they could walk into a tabernacle, at least one high priest could, look between two cherubim and hear a voice, and so that ark became a focal point. If you were looking from a heavenly view, we would, over Israel, when God took them out of Egypt and caused them to encamp in divisions, He said, the very first thing that I want is I want uh, Judah to be on the east. In Hebrew, every name has with it a definition. Every name has with it a reputation, a body of work. In Judah, it means praise. In specifically in Hebrew, it would be, may he be praised. And the he in Hebrew is a polite way to say God. See, Jews don't say God this, God that. They don't say the word Yahweh like we do, right? They do not want to use it frivolously. It's treasure. You ever heard somebody die and then somebody says something about them later and you say, ooh, ooh, we don't speak ill of the dead. Or um, somebody mentions your father made a mistake or something and you say, hey, hey, my father had a good name. Jews care about their father's name. So they simply said, may he be praised and that's what Judah meant. The first thing that would face the eastern sun as it was rising was the praise of God. Then when you move south and you saw Reuben, Reuben meant behold a man. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. This would be on the south. Then on the west, over here, what we see <coughs> is doubly blessed. The doubly blessed Ephraimites would be on the west. And on the north up here, Dan, he that judges. And the whole thing would speak one message in Hebrew from the word standpoint, it would say, May he be praised. Behold, the Son, who is doubly blessed, he that judges, has come. God was organizing his people from the heavens on the earth into a message. The message that would speak of Christ, but it was even more than that. At what point in history did the Exodus come? If you just had to guess about the number of centuries before Jesus, would it be in the first century before Jesus? The fifth century before Jesus? The 10th, 12th, 20th? I have no idea. There's a timeline on the wall. Somewhere in the 15th century is when this is happening. You know when Ezekiel saw into the heavens? Ezekiel saw in the heavens 10 centuries later. Moses began to write this. He began to organize Israel. He began to put them in these groupings in 15, 1600 B.C. Ezekiel saw into the heavens between 5 and 600 B.C. And imagine this. The standard of Judah is the face of a lion. The standard of Reuben is the face of a man. The standard on the flag of the Ephraimites is an oxen. The standard on the flag of Dan is an eagle. And what we begin to find out is a thousand years before Ezekiel saw the picture in the heavenlies, God had already organized His people on the ground to look exactly like those living creatures in the heavenlies that a voice came from above.
I'm trying to tell you is God said, you know what? I have a throne in the heavens. But I'm going to arrange my people in such a way I can be enthroned on their very lives. What did he tell them while they were in the desert like this? When you see the cloud move, what do you do? What do you do? When it stopped, just like those living creatures in the heavenlies. They were moved by the Spirit. They never had to turn around because they were always being moved with the Spirit. What we find out from our God is he wants a focal point. We find out that our God, who is everywhere, suddenly wants something that people can see that shows them about him. Now consider that message as it relates to your life. He wants something that he can see. Others can see. You remember Philip said, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. The way in which you could see the Father while looking at Jesus was you could see the fruit on the tree. You could see the actions were the actions of the Father. Jesus was the focal point. Could you describe your life as a focal point for the Lord? Are your lives arranged in such a way that it speaks a message in word, a message in action? Are you prepared for the battles that are the Lord's? Are you sitting on your hands in salvation? Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Lord cannot be enthroned upon our lives if we have determined our pace. He cannot be enthroned upon our lives if He says go and we say stay. He cannot be enthroned upon our lives if He says stay and you decide to go. Lordship enthrones Him on your life. Period. And I'm going to tell you the truth in a very difficult way that we all wrestle with. He's Lord of all of you or He's Lord of none of you. That's just how it works. I've been preaching to you out of the book of Mark about that. We quote five commandments in a row, four of which the man has got right. Of course, there was that tenth one. And he said, do this, then you can follow me. Because he's Lord of every area he's revealed to you. Or he's Lord of none of them. It's not a, oh, I serve the Lord 51%. I serve the Lord nine-tenths. I serve the Lord except in this area. Anytime he shows you something to do and you refuse to do it, you sin. James says that. Fourth chapter of James says, when you know the good you should do and do not do it, you sin. And somehow or another, American Christians have been tricked into the idea that we can continue to sin and God's okay with that. Come on, church, say no. no. Now say heavens, no. Yes. You want to say it in Hebrew? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? We don't have an English translation for that phrase. Some go, oh, my word. Others go, heavens, no. The truth is, is it's as close as a godly man could get to cursing in Hebrew. Paul said it about ten times, but one of the ways that he said it was in Romans 6. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? He used a word there that was almost a curse word. I mean, it's the... The way that the lexicon say it is it is the strongest term of negation available to a Hebrew speaker. Oh, my word. Doesn't quite do it for me. Heavens to Betsy. There you go. Golly gee willikers. I don't know, but it is the strongest term of negation available. Because he's either enthroned on your life or he is not. I'm not going to have you turn to Leviticus. Some of you might remember from reading Leviticus because I know that if you're following the church reading plan, you're in the book of Numbers, which means you've gone through Leviticus. Then in the 14th chapter, 
Actually, why don't we start in the 8th chapter. In the 8th chapter of Leviticus, we have the ordination of priests. You know, it's a little bit like looking at that throne in the heavenlies. And you're hearing all kinds of descriptions, but you're like, what? You cut this and then you spread that? You do what? You might do one of the details you just kind of didn't absorb right away. When they ordained the priests, they took blood and put it on their right ear lobe. Put it on their right, I don't know how to, great toe. Thumb toe is not a good way to say that. Huh? Your right ear, your right thumb, and your right big toe. Like, what a strange thing to have people walking around like, did you get a pedicure? Dude, let me show you this one. Can you imagine? Why would God want his priests marked like that? And then as you dig into the Hebrew culture a little bit more, you find out that the right side is the side of strength. In my hearing, I want it to be filtered through the sacrifice of Jesus. The workings of my hand, I want it to be guided by the sacrifice of Jesus. I want the walkings of my feet, the strongest part of my feet, my travelings, to be guided by Jesus because I want that man who is enthroned in the heavens to also be enthroned on the earth in my life. Amen. Above the expanse of my life, there ought to be the Lord's presence. And it ought to speak a message. May he be praised. Behold, I have become his son. I am doubly blessed. And he that judges has come. He will make all judgments for me. It ought to speak that message. Turn with me to the book of Judges. Now, because we're American Christians, when the clock clicks 12, there's a nerve that goes off in your gluteus maximus. And it begins to signal to your brain, shut down, shut down. You can receive no more. I want you to know I think more of you than that. I think that if you're able to watch a movie like The Titanic, for instance, or an entire season of Lost, or the finale on American... What's the last part of that show called? That one. That surely, surely, we could develop an appetite for the Word of God that lasts longer than the traditional American service. But they're helping me with that. The traditional American service is shrinking, kind of like the spiritual might of the traditional American Christian. Where they used to go to church for at least an hour of sermon, now we got it down to about 25 30 minutes, because that's the way to have maximum church growth. Of course, you have to redefine church growth for that, don't you? You define it by the number of butts and seats rather than lives that are enthroned. See, you can have 100,000 people and not have 1,000 that their lives are enthroned. In fact, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 24, not far from the passage we started with, the love of most will grow cold? So out of every 100, I wonder how many that is. Out of every hundred, we know it's at least 51. Do we really want mega churches? I want a mega filled church. I want a mega enthroned church. I want every life that we meet to look on the earth like it looks in the heavens. Because I took Jesus' prayer seriously. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you in the book of Judges? Yes. I'm not. <laughs> Judges. In the book of Judges, we have a short story. This short story really happened. It's amazing. 
It's powerful and it's informative. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked Yahweh, who will be first to go fight for us against the Canaanites? Even though God has given directions, even though God has decided how the army is to encamp, sometimes we stop and pray and we ask for like clarification. This was the first chapter of Judges and the first verse. We ask God to clarify what He's already told us. So for instance, this looks like, Oh Lord, do you really want me to go and repent to Him? What's His Word said? Well, so yes, you go repent. Pastor, I heard what you said. I'm praying about being baptized. He wrote it. He wrote it down many times. It's in the book in your hands. Why do you have to pray about it? That makes no sense. It's like we're asking for a personal heavenly confirmation for a 2,000-year-old, time-tested, confirmed, actual, written Word of God in the lives of millions of believers. But you think you're the one exception? See, that makes no sense. In any case, they said, who will go fight for us? And what is this response? Judah. As the sun rises, my throne will turn towards you. And it will begin to march into battle. They took Simeon along with them for comfort. You know what Simeon means in Hebrew? He hears. They took their ability to praise, their ability to hear from God, and they went out into battle. They were going to face somebody. Let's read who they faced. Simeon and their brothers said, Come and go with us into the territory allotted to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will, will go with you to yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Bezek means lightning. Hebrew is Bezek for lightning. What's that next line say? Somebody read it out loud. It is there that they found Adonai, Bezek, and Adonai, isn't that the Lord's name? Yeah. Adonai is a Hebrew word that means owner and controller. It means Lord, master. When we spell Adonai, we usually throw an extra A in it. You know why? Because this guy's name's Adonai, and it's exactly the same in Hebrew, and we're trying to distinguish between the two of them. Sometimes I call him Adonai, right? We put a little emphasis on the syllables, and all of a sudden it sounds different. <laughs> they encountered the false god of lightning. Yeah? You remember in Luke 10, because y'all read that on Thursday? In Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like... He just sent out the 72 to go actually preach the kingdom, advance the kingdom. And as the kingdom advanced in that area right then, it was like that false lightning God was following, falling from his kingdom. Kingdom were clashing against kingdom. Now I'm well aware that Isaiah 14 contains a reference about the king of Tyre and everybody gets warm fuzzies when thinking about it and says, oh that happened thousands of years before this. Isn't it much more likely that if kingdom is clashing against kingdom and the kingdom of God was going out, he saw it happening right then. Why on earth would he be referring to a prophecy 700 years before for a completely different set? If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. You'd be blessed just to have heard what I said. Adonai Bezek. And they fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites, Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him. How many Christians would you describe as chasing the enemy? 
They went into battle and they weren't satisfied to watch him flee. They chased him. Sometimes you chase the devil out of your life and he lands in your teenage son's life. Chase him. Sometimes he goes from your house to your in-laws. Chase him. Sometimes he moves to people that you love because he no longer has dominion in you. Chase him. Sometimes the people of God need to wake up because he's got evil intent on you. You keep reading down. Do you know what Adonai Bezek was most known for? He cut off people's big toes on their right foot. Big toes. Also, thumbs and ears. He maimed and crippled. He bragged. He did it to 70 kings. This is the satanic desire to cut you off from that enthronement. It is to cut you off from the anointing of God to make you ordinary. You know what they did to him? The same. They reduced him to a dog under their table. Jesus said all the enemies of God would be put under his feet. What are you? You are the body of Christ. It is our job not only to pick the fight with the enemy, but to chase him wherever he goes and to win and to reduce him to something that is under the feet of Jesus. Church, we've got a long ways to go. But it starts with what we do now, this second. We did our budget with our overseers. First we did it with our elders, then we took it to the overseers. It's kind of like a first draft and a second draft. If a church is not planting churches, and a church is not avidly supporting missionaries around the world, then what is the church there for? So, well, it's to mature the lives of the believers. To what purpose if you are not planting churches? The fivefold ministry is given for the purpose of preparing God's people for works of service. So our budget is centered around those things. What it takes to get you from wherever you are to actually working for the Lord and how to increase those in this neighborhood, in this city, this state, this country, and the rest of the world. And we're not going to wait until everybody in here is doing that. We're going to support those we can see doing it now with every ounce that God has given us. That is kingdom. Everything else is something selfish, something lesser, something debased. If a group of believers exists solely for the purpose of those believers, they have missed out on life. Why don't you do this? Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. How many of you could live with just this one last scripture? If you, if you will accept that for me, then say yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> All right, y'all going to have to explain yourself. Who wants, who wants to not do any more scripture? Okay, so all of you want at least one more? Yes. I meant no, then more. I know what you If we had hymnals in here, brother, you'd be under a pile of them right now. You've got to be careful with religious people. I wanted you to know what it was to have the power of God working in your life. I wanted you to be a focal point on the earth. But if you ever train for something and train for something and train for something, there comes a kind of performance anxiety. We see this sometimes in worship. People that sing in the shower, 
man, they, they completely, uh, all inhibitions are thrown to the wind. They've abandoned caution. Why? Nobody's around. They'll worship. I mean, they grab that bar of soap and worship. <laughs> Is that being here? My little girl, she'll sing in the mirror with a hairbrush. Going up to the high places, she will sing. She sings rain, rain, rain on my face. She sings all kinds of songs, right? I'm going to be honest, I'm a pastor and I love praise. Sometimes it's a little much. Okay. She gets loud, she dances, she sways her hips. Sometimes she sways in ways where we have to teach a young woman that her body can, is only supposed to move certain ways. There are no cat-like worship poses, you know? She goes downstairs on the piano. She works out on the piano. <laughs> Abby wants very much to sing with her mother in worship because your children want to be like you whether you know it or not. And the truth is they're going to be whether that's good or bad. Soon as we've said, sure, Abby, sing. Here, Aunt Cass is here sing to her. She turned red and clamped up. It is in our nature to not want to live out there what we practice in here. You want a, a comfortable place. You want, and, and then when that place gets comfortable and God says, go a little further, once you've conquered Jerusalem, go to Samaria, we, we always withdraw at the thought of being vulnerable, being exposed. If you kill Adonai Bezek in one city, I mean, that's pretty good, huh? God's called us to take the world. So I wanted to cover one last scripture with you that really deals with that, that performance thing. I've practiced it. I've practiced, I know, Lord, and you're enthroned on my life in this little circle. You know, right here I'm doing everything you've called me to do in this one little spot. And now he's going, and step, and you're going, huh? And step, huh? Step. Okay, now I'm good right here, Lord. In this little circle, I'm, I'm good. I'm right here. He's trying to get us to sprint. We don't quite get it. I want you to see a king and what he can teach us through that. This would be in 2 Chronicles. Turn with me to the 20th chapter. It's not fair. You lived with me, Brandon. I don't retread messages, friends. I do very much do my best to hear from the Lord about what's going on. And then you only have so many things that have impacted your life to draw from. We're always filling it with more. But this is one of those that's hanging on my wall in the office because it impacts my life every day. Can you say amen to that? Amen. What's hanging on your walls that impacts your life? If right now you had to stand and preach, where would you turn? If 30 minutes went by in an hour, hour and a half, how long would you speak about the things that God had impacted your life? You understand what I'm telling you? We have to put something in there. We have to work at it. We have to grow our testimony. Your testimony is not you got saved a billion years ago. Your testimony is he's been saving you every day since. Amen. This is the first verse. When I asked you if y'all would take one scripture, I didn't tell you it's going to be a chapter. <laughs> After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Minyanites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. I want you to understand the enemy showed up to make war. Okay? Satan is not interested in prospering you. 
He is not interested in patting you on the back, making you feel good. Well, He might want you to feel good. So that you go to sleep. So that He can kill you. The enemy has showed up with evil intent. And who are these enemies? In this case, it's the Moabites and the Ammonites. Both those names mean some variant of from my father. Isn't that interesting? They both come from a corrupted practice out of the line of God's people. A sinful, terrible thing that you don't usually show in the New Believers class. If you read Genesis right now, your mind might be racing back to that event. Little cave and Zor. Listen. Most of our biggest struggles do not come because Adonai Bezek shows up in the flesh and says, I will take you on. You would recognize that. You've been training for it. You know what to do with it. Most of our biggest struggles come from a corrupted practice within the church that says, you don't really, you don't really have to take it that serious, Mike. Take it down knowledge, man. I mean, look, we're all doing it. It's just fine. It was not the Philistines that represented a problem to Samson. It was his own townspeople that were tired of it. Jehoshaphat is fighting with people that should have supported him. In fact, when Israel crossed through their land, God said, they're, they're, they're your cousins. Don't fight with them. Don't do it. And yet they've come to make war. Don't be surprised when you get really serious about doing things for the Lord and all the opposition comes to you from sources you had hoped would support you. If a stranger flips you off in traffic, how bad does that hurt your feelings? If it was somebody you loved and they got mad enough to do that, might hurt your feelings, huh? So if the devil is going to use someone, he uses those close to you. When he left Jesus for a more opportune time, he was looking for those members of his own race, his own family, that would betray him. Do you understand what I'm telling you? The kingdom is difficult. And that's why you need his anointing. You cannot do it without it. After this, the Moabites uh, came to make war. Verse 2. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom and the other side of the sea. It is, read, it is already in Hezazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. Is it wrong for him to be alarmed? No. But it would be wrong. In fact, the alarm is a good thing. What did it drive him to do? Inquire of the Lord. Your emotions are not wrong to have. None of them. But they were meant to drive you towards godly things. And if your emotions are driving you towards ungodly things, then He is not enthroned on your life. For Him to be enthroned on your life, when you feel alarm, you submit that alarm to Him. So what do I do? He says, pray. Pray. My prophet's already on the way. You just don't know it. The battle's already won and you just don't know it. Pray. But if that alarm causes you to go dig a hole and hide in it, or just go bury yourself in church life and never go interact with the enemy, then our emotions have taught us something that's wrong. The strongest driving emotion in the American church is the desire for comfort. And it comes from a feeling of entitlement. We feel entitled to simply sit back and eat all the best of the land and do nothing. That's the sin of selfishness. It really is. So, well, we give to missions more than to the waiter. Hmm? By the way, what is it customary these days to tip a waiter? 20%. What is it customary to give to God? We put him on a scale that is lower than the waiter. 
Does he do more or less for you than the waiter? Say, so, well, that pastor's just trying to increase his tithe. We're not even passing around a plate, but let me let me let you hear something. I'm not looking for 20% of your income. I want God to get 20%. He just happens to say a tenth of it could go into the church and it will support that function. Where do you think the rest should go? Into things you're doing every day. And it should include missions. It should include when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms to the poor. We think we do all that through the church. That's a ridiculous concept. You hired somebody to be a Christian for you? How many of you would like to just hire? We could, we could have a surrogate Christian life. Maybe we could write that book, David. I bet it would sell. The surrogate Christian life. You could probably make lots of money with it. To pay somebody up. You know what? I go to India. They're doing the difficult with less training, less money. That's everything. Isn't that a little bit like the surrogate Christian life? Aren't we just kind of paying them to be real Christians? Yeah. We might could wake up with this. Let me say this, though. If you have to start somewhere, you're at least on the right track with wanting to finance someone being a real Christian. That's at least on the right track. When I look out, y'all, I want you to know the reason I pause is not that I don't know what I'm doing or where we're going or that I just want to keep you here forever. I can see, I can see in some of your lives you're in a valley that the Bible calls the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You had to make a decision. How serious do you want to be with Christianity? How long will you play with this? See, even in a little remnant church like this, where I know you and you know me, we have game players. Is that something? We have varying levels of commitment to Jesus in this room. The greatest mark of success would be when you could say, I know without a shadow of a doubt every one of those people would give their lives for the Lord. Even in this ministry, we can't say that. Now, you could get mad at me for that, or you could go, wow, is my life really the focal point? It should be. Now, let me ask you, before we read about Jehoshaphat, if the person on your left was asked about you, what would they say? If the one on your right was asked about you, what would they say? In front of you? Behind you? Because they all ought to be able to see it in front of them. And if they can't see it, did you get a 50% vote out of them? Did you get a 100%? Every tree is known by its fruit. That prophecy was right on whoever gave it. It was awesome. What would they say? Keith Green used to say, if your mother didn't see, say that you're saved, then you're not. If your mother didn't see a difference, you're not saved. We don't apply these standards anymore. Instead, what we say is, if you prayed a magic prayer, you got Jack's jelly bean, then you're saved. Throne, that's a whole other issue to them. Lordship and salvation, two separate things to them. That's as silly a concept as could possibly be. Jehoshaphat was so sold out for the Lord that when trouble came, he took it to the Lord. Some men came and told him, and he resolved in verse 3. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. As it went with the head, so it went with everyone else. I'm going to take from you about 15 minutes. You will probably leave this building I don't know when you'll leave. I'll stop preaching in about 15 minutes. 
But one of the things that you need to think right now is you determine the direction for everybody that God put in your sphere of influence. Your kids aren't doing well. I want to tell you, Daddy, Mommy, it is your fault. I know that's not the way to build a big church. It's the children's church worker's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the teacher. It's someone else's fault. No, it's your fault. Because as the king went, so the nation went. As the head of the household goes, so the household will go. He said, well, they're, they're 20 years old. Don't get mad at me. But your mistake is in thinking that they're children. See, I'm talking about those in your household, but if you still think of 20-year-old people as children, that says something about you. We have to take responsibility for what God has given us. We have to know something. That what we do will affect everybody under us. Do you know why you were born in sin? Because Adam was the federal head of the human race, sin. And he brought everybody else in. So, Daddy, do you really think that you can get away with a pornography habit and it won't cause your daughter problems? Do you really think that? Well, nobody knows. You mark my words. It will destroy their lives, too. Mommy, do you really think that a vicious tongue, a slanderous tongue, is not going to affect your little boy? This enthronement issue is life or death. It is the word that is set before us that we choose every day. Life or death. And it has a sweeping effect. How many of you walked into this church without being told about it by anybody? Raise your hand if nobody told you about or invited you to the church. You just saw it and walked in. There's our marketing program, huh, Matthew? Everybody in here found out about this from someone. If the person that invited you tomorrow was caught in adultery, would it affect your walk with the Lord? Would it affect the way you view the people here? We have a responsibility. Jehoshaphat was alarmed. He didn't hide his alarm. It's not mommy and daddy are perfect. He showed his alarm and expressed it as inquiring of the Lord. And the whole nation followed the same. Pick up with me in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Do we sometimes make God small by our prayer requests? Do we sometimes magnify our problems and as a result shrink God? Listen to where this man who is inquiring of God starts. He starts with absolute confidence that everything's in God's hands anyway. That he's in control of the nations. Even if they're rebellious, he still believes God can steer them. This is like Joseph seeing God's work at hand even though his brothers are sinning against him. God is bigger than we make him. And when we put our problems between... If you hold a penny between you and the sun close enough, it blocks out the sun. But you put that penny closer to God, or the sun rather, and you can't even see it. This is what we need to do with our problems. We need to throw them closer to the presence of God so that they become smaller. Are you with me? Nod your head if you think that's a good idea. Maybe we could take it to the throne and stay off of the phone sometimes. Or in our generation... 
Facebook. Maybe you can get in his book and stay off of Facebook for a little while. We know that somebody belched four states over, but we don't know what God thinks of our life today. How does that work? We've never been any more connected to all the people around us and less connected to the Lord. We can do better. We can. Angelique, your life was made for a purpose. You are a beautiful young woman, and God has a plan for you, but so does the enemy. Baby, you're in a valley that God wants you to stand firm for Him. And you know what? He will deny you no good thing, but you may have to deny yourself things that you think are good. The reason I'm telling you that is because I care for you. The young man sitting behind you has had an amazing experience with the Lord. But there'll be a battle for his life. He's gifted. He's gifted. He's got musical abilities. He's anointed for worship. He'll have a choice all before him, just like so many others did. Jerry Lee Lewis was thrown out of a seminary. Little Richard, thrown out of a church. These were men who were called to something. But lordship was not that important. And they sold out to the world. There are eternal prices for that. Are y'all willing that any should perish? No, no. Keithan, are you willing that any would perish? I don't want anybody to perish. Keithan's got a calling on his life. Y'all, if we band together and resolve just to do what he did, when alarmed, inquire of the Lord and decide before you do anything else in the conversation, he's big enough to handle it. Stacy, is he big enough to handle your problems? We shake our head, yes, I believe you when you say that. But do our actions say he is big enough to handle our problems? Oh, I know the Lord will provide, but I'm going to spend the next 10 days biting my fingernails off. Yeah? We need our actions to match our professions. Watch Jehoshaphat. His actions mark them. Verse 7, O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He begins to recount the things God has already done for him. CJ, what has God already done for you? Fred, what has God done in your life already for you? These are meant to encourage us that when we are out there facing our next battle outside of our comfort zone, having to follow the presence of God that is enthroning us, we can look and see what He has already done and know what He will do. This is why Raquel doesn't have to be scared to go do a new thing. It's why Ryan doesn't have to be scared to do the next thing. Look, after David killed Goliath, do you think he was scared of giants? If it were us, we'd go, I killed one giant, Lord, how many do you want me to face? Been there, done that. Give it to somebody else. Let me go plant a church in San Francisco. They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name. Say, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name. In your life, you have built a temple. This is your level of obedience. And that temple is filled with the presence of God. And what you determine to do is come high water or the attack of the enemy. Whatever it is, you stand in the presence of God. 
This is the Word of God that is working in your life, powered by the Spirit of God. And you resolve to do nothing else. You stand in that presence. And you know where He is? Enthroned right above your head. Are you beginning to understand in the epistles now? Why it says, when people insult you and persecute you for my name, the glory of God rests on your shoulders. His glory rests on you because He's enthroned on you. Look what else. We haven't even faced the enemy yet, but He's determined He's going to stand there. Verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. It is not sin to, to know the limitations of your arms. Right? It is not sin to not know what to do. But it is sin to think God doesn't know what you should do. It is sin to think God doesn't have the power to do it. So, acknowledging our weakness in the storm is part of Him being enthroned. Lord, I don't know where to go. I might have to follow you. Lord, I don't have the strength to do it, but I know you do, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. This takes you out of the equation. By the way, when you look at a king, if his throne outshines him, he's not much of a king. He looks like a little boy in a big throne. He's not much of a king. Our God is the only king that I've ever seen that you wouldn't even notice what he's enthroned on. And he does it this way. You know why? He's supposed to be enthroned in your life. And you're not supposed to outshine Him. You're not. You're not supposed to be about your talent. You're not supposed to be about your abilities. And it's not supposed to be about your good looks. I'm a little disturbed by all the good-looking pastors and their wives that I see. I really am. I, I'm beginning to think maybe God doesn't call us ugly people. I don't understand that. When did God exclusively call Ken and Barbie? But you would swear that because it's a marketing campaign to fill seats. The throne cannot outshine the king. Amen. Look at verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives, children, and little ones stood before the Lord. Let's just be honest, Charlie. Where would you want to put your little ones? You want to go dig a bunker. Hide them. Put them in the mountains. Anywhere. You know an army bigger than you that you have no power and no direction for is coming? Jehoshaphat had learned that the only refuge available was the Lord. When do we learn that? See, we think that the Lord is our refuge for some things and not other things. Financial trouble, run to MasterCard. You know? Sick, run straight to the hospital, don't pass go. Whatever it is, the Lord is the only real refuge. And whatever direction comes out of the Lord is what we do. Are you hearing me? These things that so concern us, they don't concern him very much. In fact, he says in verse 15, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. He's enthroned upon your life. The king protects the throne. It's not the throne's job to defend the king. It's the king's job to defend his throne. What a crazy thing. We don't even have to fight. We just have to show up. Look at verse 17. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. If you align yourself 
where he has told you to be, you don't even have to go win the battle. You simply stand your ground. Do you remember Ephesians 6? When you've done everything to stand? Stand. See, Paul was so inundated with this life, it came out in everything that he wrote. This is what he's speaking of. How about verse 18? Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell face down and worshipped before the Lord. They haven't even gotten into the battle, but what are they doing? They're acting as if he is the victorious king. They're worshipping, even though the army hasn't shown up. Before your day of testing, you spend it in anxiety or in worship. He goes so far in verse 21 to hire people to praise. You know what they begin saying? Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. Their annihilation is at hand. They stand there with their children. These are real people. Stand up, Gabe. I love him. Real people. Somebody's coming with a sword to cut off my head. Wouldn't my strongest inclination be to hide him? But instead, we say the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Gabe, whatever comes over that hill. God will deliver us from. And if He doesn't deliver us, if we perish, this is the spot we're going to perish in because this is what God gave us. Friends, that teaches your family something. That teaches them what it is to be men and women of God instead of some kind of reed that vacillates in the wind to avoid being broken. It's called character. And it's God's character that He puts in you. Look at verse 22. As they began to sing and praise. Who do you send first in the battle? Judah. Judah. Who faces the rising sun? Judah. My firstborn was named <coughs> Judah. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes. See, we serve a God who is wise enough to put His people in indefensible positions to lure the enemy into contact with them so that he can crush them on behalf of his people. That's exactly what the cross is. That is exactly what our lives are. He lures the enemy into something that looks like God that he thinks he can abuse because we are smaller and weaker, but he has filled us with himself and sits on the throne of our lives so that we can chase him down and cut off his thumbs and toes. The people go back to Jerusalem rejoicing. Our message was called Cause. Look at verse 27. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. Matt, come here. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. Let me ask you, church, has the Lord given you cause to rejoice? If you believe He's enthroned upon your life, all the questions that I asked you during this message, are you willing to be obedient? Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? Will you devour the Word? Will you stay in the presence of His Spirit? This causes you to have cause to rejoice. Because the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. He is already ambushing the enemy. Every time you encounter a dark power, you know that it is not brought to you for your oppression. 
He was brought to, you, brought to you so that he would think he was attacking you and in fact God would crush it. Yes. I'm going to be honest, this is not arrogant. This is the way Christians should think. When you enter a room and they're all talking nasty, when you enter a place and it feels oppressive and you go, oh, I feel oppression there, you ought to believe God brought you there to change it. Yeah. Yeah. Say, so look out darkness, light is in the room. I am what is supposed to change the environment because God is enthroned upon my life. I entered into a city, I was joking with some friends earlier, where I felt like I was in a compound. People didn't even go to Taco Bell on Friday. I never saw anything like it. But I didn't think God brought me there to bend me towards the oppression. I thought God brought me there because He wanted to drive the oppression out. It started with a 15-year-old boy. And then we took a family. And then two families. And then three. And I did the same thing here. This is God enthroned on your life. You are the game changer. The cause to rejoice over the enemy is that when you enter the room, darkness is supposed to leave. We're going to sing to him who sits on the throne. When we sang that song earlier, did you envision that throne somewhere else? Because it's right here. It's right here. If he's your king. And if you don't feel as if it's right here, and he doesn't seem like your king, if you're not quite feeling what I'm preaching today, get up here. <clears throat> Come to an altar. Ask him for help. He will never fail to save those who call out to him. It's about I've done it before. It's not about the calling. It's about him answering and you being obedient. That's to do it as many times as it takes. Our lives in the end are going to leave one legacy. It's going to be we either had him enthroned and were a focal point for the world to look at, or we stayed on our own throne. That has all become such churchy language, I don't think they have any concept that the Lord's glory actually rests on our shoulders. Who's got the glory of the Lord on our shoulders today? Stand to your feet. Let's begin to praise Him. Oh, it's 1240, and that could be really annoying. Of course, if our life doesn't belong to us, then our time doesn't either, does it? What would be more important this morning? That somebody who is not doing well gets right? Or that you get to eat at Piccadilly faster? <laughs> what would be more important this morning? That you get to share a brother's prayer burden and need? Become one with him and the Lord? Or that you just get to go watch your football game faster? I despised altar calls when I was lost, not because I felt conviction. I despised them because I never saw grosser hypocrisy. I was just a little boy sitting in a denominational church. But when people did come to the altar, half the church was filing out the back door. Because they weren't really there to see anybody get saved. They were there to feel better about themselves, go home and eat their meals. You had a new member, nobody came to meet them. I'm so happy our church is different than that. Of course, we can do all the right things and our hearts still not be in it. I'm asking you to really worship. When you came in, you started to worship, right? You felt it. Did God change in that last hour and 40 minutes? Let's let Him be enthroned right now. And let's see if some daring person doesn't have the courage to change their situation.
right? I'm telling you right now, I could pick you out. I'd pick a couple of you out. I won't do that. You know why? You cannot be driven to Jesus. It's a calling that you have to answer. It's a calling. What we sing, you need to get right with God, I will turn off the mic. There'll be no more public anything. It's just you and the Lord that this altar is open. Amen? Amen. We're going to pray. Holy Father, 